Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. In this episode, we're hearing how a methodology called Asset-Based Community Development, or ABCD, can build relationships and strengthen community life. And talking us through it is this man. Start with what's strong, not with what's wrong, and then use what's strong to address what's wrong and make what's strong in the community even stronger still. That's how enduring change happens. That's the voice of Cormac Russell. He's the founder of Nurture Development. And they're an organization that gets invited by communities and groups all over the world to help them use ABCD to identify what's strong in a community, to make those things stronger, and to use them to fix what's wrong. Now, I'd been hoping to speak to Cormac for quite some time. I'd been hearing different things about his work in Europe and Africa and Asia. And so I was very excited to be able to sit down and chat with Cormac recently. And when I started the interview, I began by asking him how he first became passionate about community development. I was raised in the west of Ireland. And I grew up in uh, the rural part of a city called Limerick. Community was really just part of how we lived our lives. So I'm coming in towards my 50s now. I know that's changed a lot over the years, but certainly as, as a child uh, growing up in the west of Ireland, it was very much um, about community life. So I think that was just in, in the bloodstream, really, from a very, very young age. And um, over time, obviously, as I grew older and um, a little bit clearer about what I wanted to do, I sort of moved into the whole field of psychology and started working a lot with um, children who were looked after by the state for various reasons. So kids who, you know, would have been in community care or whatever the terms that are used these days are. And it just really struck me that a lot of these kids were receiving neither community nor care. Um, they were effectively institutionalized, but we put a different badge on it. Not the awful big institutions of years past, but you know similar principles. They were surrounded by people with the same issues as they had, were looked after by people who were paid to look after them, and really didn't have any connections with the neighbors on the street where the houses were. So I became really interested in that question. Like, what would you do in a situation like that? And initially began to realize that what I had trained to be as a psychologist, well, there was no answers in that domain. There was no real useful answers in that field. Hmm. And that's, that's a bit of a shocker when you first let it settle. But then it became quite exciting to kind of think, okay, so how might we help these kids you know, get connected um, with people who don't feel sorry for them, but actually see them as valuable people, see them as neighbors, maybe friends. And, and that's been my life's question, really, for the last, whatever, 25, nearly 30 years. How do, if you're paid at one level, but also if you're not paid, but how do you do something usefully that supports people to show up um, and participate as citizens? You, you use the term institutionalized there and looking on your website you talk about reducing institutionalization mm. can you just tell me what you, what you mean by that and why why institutionalization is so harmful 
I can. I, I, my own feeling would be probably layered in with my answer as well as theory. So at a feeling level, I think what people really need in life is uh, someone to love, somewhere to live and something meaningful to do. So I'm not um, fundamentally attacking uh, institutions, but I think that there are limits to what institutions can do in those domains. Mm-hmm. So typically an institution is set up to provide goods and services for people, and it has lots and lots of caring people within the institution. Uh, but an institution, in my estimation, can never be a surrogate or a proxy for a family or a community. You think about how an institution is structured, even the non-hierarchical ones, they kind of work on the basis. The basic principle is that they exist to enable things to happen that are not centrally reliant on any one person. Right? So, you know, you'll often hear this, when anybody should be able to do this. If you go in the morning, the, your, your, your CEO might say to you, if you're gone in the morning, this should continue. This institution and our work should continue. And we all laud that. But another way of thinking about that is, is that means that the institution depersonalizes. Mm. It's not about you. Now, community and family personalize. This morning, I brought my kids to school. I have three young boys, and um, I know their foibles. Their mom is in hospital at the moment, nothing serious. But, um, so they need an extra little bit of minding because they're anxious about, you know, about their mom. And um, I know how um, Saul, one of my sons, likes his uh, porridge, and he likes some Cheerios on top of his porridge. It's really particular stuff, very mm-hmm. personal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is, and I'm not providing him with a service uh, or a good. You know, um, this is this is the free, this is care. It's the freely given gift of the heart. And institutions don't do that. Now, my sort of take on it is, is that institutions don't care that people do, and uh, that doesn't make institutions bad. It makes them limited. And what we've tried to do, I believe, is we've tried to make institutions do more things than institutions are designed to do. And in the process, we've taken functions that belong to families and communities, and we've outsourced them to institutional uh, roles. You know, I mean, if you look 100 years ago at what communities would have seen as their role when it came to teaching and helping their children learn, and you look at the number of functions over the course of 100 years, and this is in Africa too, I see it there too, we do a lot of work in Kenya and um, Rwanda, Mm. uh, South Sudan, and I'm seeing over and over again functions that would have belonged to the village are now being taken on by paid professionals. So my theory is, is that the more we do that, the more institutions take on community functions, the more you see the erosion of citizens. So the greater those functions are in the professional space, the more and more you see the retreat of community. So there's a power relationship. Mm. And that's why so many communities think the only way things can get better is if somebody with expertise, with institutional know-how, with money, comes in to make them better. This is a big issue all over Africa. Um, but particularly in East Africa, we mm. see huge, huge dependency on NGOs coming in. Yeah. Um, and again, 
It's the tyranny of the expert. And nobody means any harm, but the difficulty with it is that institutions also silo. They specialize. Yep. Um, and of course, what a lot we're now really understanding through complexity theory and what we've understood always, I think, in the community space is you can never solve only one issue. When you think about community and you think about the village as your primary unit of change rather than the institution or the individual, then you start to really understand, ah, okay, silos are where smart people go to do dumb things. And uh, communities are where ordinary people go to do amazing things. Wow! Wow! And that's where that's where I've really begun to see, you know, very authentic change happen and um, enduring change happen. So let, let's rewind a bit again. And so you were working in child psychology, and you saw the need for connection and community. Tell me then how you first heard about ABCD, and and what was what was its appeal to you. Well, what I was, I suppose, like I say, what I was looking for was some way of bridging the gap between what I saw as these young people's capacities. That was just my own instinct, um, that it's always um, clear to me when I meet people for the first time that they have capacities. So I think that's just the way I kind of came into the world. That's my kind of filter. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about how you could link those to the capacities of people around them, but not for pay. So, you know, how do you get near neighbors connected in with these kids just because it's, it's fun? So my thought was, well, I haven't been trained to do this. This is just purely by instinct. But it seemed obvious that you would look at different ways of doing that through community development as a lens. You know, so I had that kind of sense, oh, well, community development is surely they answer questions about how you build relationships between people who are marginalized and the wider community. And so I started looking around at different approaches to community development. And to be honest, Jake, most of what I encountered was uh, community development that was working almost exclusively with named target groups like older people or younger people or people who had a particular issue and largely helping them to organize to get the system world or the institutional world to do something to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I've shared already my thoughts around the limits of that, but it can be useful. You know, it can, it can, it can address some key issues. But what it wasn't doing was answering the question I, I was asking. And I was asking the question largely because it seemed to me as an ethical practitioner that that was the substantive question. Like the, what these kids wanted were connections. Um, not just with paid people, and they'd lost connections with their family. So it seemed to me that, you know, building community was pretty much an urgent thing, a necessity, if you like, in their lives. So that, for me, was the kind of starting point. I couldn't find anything that was really speaking to it in the community development world. I'm sure maybe I didn't look adequately enough in Europe. But then my gaze turned to what was happening in the U.S., and to the work of um, John McKnight mm-hmm. and the ABCD Institute. And that was in around about the time that they published the uh, what we now affectionately refer to as the Green Book, the Building Communities from Inside Out, an asset-based approach to community building. So it was in around about 93, 94. Mm-hmm. And uh, that book subsequently went on then to be the best-selling book ever, in community development, which is interesting. I think it's sold about 150,000 copies, which is almost unheard of, actually, when you think about, you know, community development books tend to be niche. 
So if you sell, if you sell 15,000, that's amazing. Mm. So over the course of time, I reached out to John in the mid-90s and um, we started doing some stuff together. And I tried some of the asset-based um, approach uh, in my work and found I didn't have a huge amount of space to stretch and grow. I got some, um, but subsequently left. So I left that role in 95, really convinced that there was something really powerful in the, uh, not so much the ABCD approach, but in how the world looked when you looked at it through the lens of ABCD, if that made sense. Mm. And um, I thought, well, okay, I, um, I need to do something about this. So I set up my own social enterprise and literally just started exploring. Um, so I did that in 96. And this was nurture and development? This is nurture development, mm. yeah. And I've just been going ever since, really, um, from one conversation to the next. <laughs> so, t- so tell us, for people who've not heard of it, tell us the basic idea behind ABCD. Well, I suppose the, the kind of basic idea in simple terms is you start with what's strong instead of what's wrong mm-hmm. in any given instance. That's not to say we shy away from issues or problems but even like that if somebody starts and says well <clears throat> you know i really care about a particular problem what we're really asking is is okay so what resources do you have locally and within your control that you could uh, begin to use to start to address that so it's it's looking at that kind of question of what are the things that need to be addressed locally for us to have good lives um, that we as local people are prepared to work together to address and what are the local resources that we could use to do that. Mm. And um, that doesn't foreclose on outside agencies helping. What it does say is, is that there's a sequence. And the optimum sequence, if, if you want a democratic, powerfully engaged citizenry, is to start with, so what can we do ourselves alone? just using local resources. That's the first level. The second level is what can we do with some help from outside, outside resources, but basically where we're in the lead as as local people. And then finally, what do we need done for us? So it's this kind of idea that communities, societies grow better when they grow from bottom up. And Mm -hmm. that three-way questioning process is the sequence and the critique of ABCD is, is that currently what's happening is the opposite. That We start with the, the, the third question. What can the outside agencies do to us or for us, uh, as opposed to looking at our own assets and resources? And so the, the, the idea in terms of what our assets are, the assets of local residents that give skills, to talents, knowledge, passions, um, the assets of local uh, associations, the clubs, the groups, the social networks, the local institutions that support community life, the place itself, and the stories of that place are the key assets. And of course, the economy um, and the uh, exchanges, not just economic exchanges. So that's it in a nutshell. I mean, I'll give you a very quick account, but that's, that's the essence of it. And looking at your website and social media, you've, you've been all, all over the world, it seems, going into communities and, and delivering or, or how, whatever you would call it, this ABCD. Can you, sure. can you give us some stories or examples of, of what, you, what you've done, where you've done it and what the, what the impact has been? Boy, there's so much. Um, you know, and I haven't done anything really. Uh, it's largely, um, you can see, see our role as a, 
a cheerleader role. So for me, I, a lot of what we're doing is we're cheering people on. Maybe, you know, a, a couple of incisive questions. I don't think we're just uh, just cheering people on. We're bringing kind of powerful lenses and frameworks. And we've been very, very privileged to do that in different places. So f- some examples uh, in Singapore, we're helping across Singapore over the last number of years, we've helped them reimagine um, social work from uh, uh, its focus, which would have been very much on case management into a community development style approach. So that's one extreme example where you're working with institutions to think about the way they change really as institutions. Then at the other uh, extreme, working very, very closely with communities and schools in the Gasabo district in Rwanda, where they wanted to, re- that a lot of the schools have been built by parents, but the parents themselves wanted to um, think about how they could make the school experience much, much more powerful, both for the teachers and for the pupils, and in a way that really drew on the capacities of the local community. So um, it's been a really interesting process in Rwanda over the last three years. We've trained community builders who use an asset-based approach, go into schools, speak with parents, remind parents that they're, they, they've got skills, they've got capacities that their children do too, and then ask them, Rather than, you know, what's the problem and what funding can we get to fix the problem? They say, what, what would you like to do? What do you want to address? And how can we support you to do that? So the community builders have been working with parents to address one of the really big issues, which is that uh, teachers weren't always showing up for class because they weren't always getting a monthly salary mm-hmm. uh, in Rwanda. And beginning to think about, okay, how do we do something practically about that? Uh, Lovely ideas emerging using local assets. So, for example, turning the school into a marketplace at the weekend where uh, teachers could buy produce at the third of the price that they would pay in a mainstream market, paying using uh, time banking credits. So a teacher would get paid, their salary would be topped up with time credits, which they could then use to trade in to um, ask parents who have particular skills to do things like make their daughter a dress, for example. So the parents were actually beginning to use other currencies to top up the salary of the teachers. That really, really changed the way teachers thought about their role. They showed up a lot more. Kids were a lot happier in school. And then we come to other work that we've done in the UK, where, for example, uh, in one particular community in Scotland, the Scottish government have evaluated our work independently over the last three years and have shown that by having a community builder, actually it's in six different neighborhoods, there's a community builder in each of these neighborhoods in a place called uh, South Ayrshire, which is outside of Glasgow, that um, mental health issues have reduced, GP visits have reduced, and more importantly, mental health and well-being has increased. Interestingly, not just with the people who engaged in community activities, but across the general population. Um, And this is just by having a community builder working at street level, connecting people to each other, to what their passions are, to what they want to do, and to the local assets. And then, obviously, once some activity gets done around that, moving moving forward. Another favorite example of mine is a community in uh, Hodge Hill in Birmingham, 
where the uh, local vicar used an acid-based approach and invited seven of his neighbours to begin a what they called a listening campaign, where they went out to try to find connectors, local residents who were really good at connecting people in relationships in the community. Mm. And this was across a population of 5,000 people. So they found 93 people, they call them unsung heroes. And they went and said thank you to each of them and invited them to a party, but asked them to bring some of their local neighbors with them from their street. They kind of went from one to seven to 93 to, you know, hundreds and now right. thousands of people. Just a, a practical question. You're, you're invited into a community then or to into a institution? It can vary, an institution. Yeah, typically, yeah. I don't know whether it's not typically always we're invited in. We don't, we don't insinuate ourselves. I mean, obviously, people can go on the website and we, I hope we reasonably clearly articulate what our you know, what our offer is or the kinds of conversations we'd have or the training that we'd offer. And then, yet yeah, people would uh, would invite us in. You know, so a council might say, look, you know, we'd like you to come in and work with us. But also there are a number of um, neighborhoods that are interested too. And so we might, for example, spend a couple of years in a place, myself or a team member, where we're in pretty deep relationship with the different organizations and with different communities trying to grow what we call learning sites so these are living expressions this is doing it and learning learning as we go yeah so that 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 can vary and we've supported the establishment of learning sites with uh, our partner in australia bank of ideas so we've been working quite closely with them as well and across australia now there are about maybe 30 uh, of these learning sites as well and and really it's people doing the work and then sharing about what they're learning so rather than i i abcd is not a model it's 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 a framework it really is about giving people the space and the encouragement to say look why don't you figure out how this applies in your context and make sense but there's some core principles Let's try to be true to them. But this isn't about imposing a model on you. It's, it's, it's about figuring out what, what works in this place and what's, what's, uh, what's relevant to here. Mm. Are you a business or a charity? We're essentially a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you've always, and it's, it's been interesting, I've stayed away from being a charity intentionally mm. because of the ethos of what we do. And so I thought it would be quite interesting to have to sing for our supper and really try to, if it was going to work, try and make it about, well, people are bringing us in because they feel there's value add. And uh, if there isn't, we either have to figure out how to bring some or we don't, we don't survive. And I quite like that idea of constantly having to figure out how we can be useful in this space. And one of the difficulties, I think, with the old charity model is this is not all charities are like this this isn't a, a, a critique of mm-hmm. charities but the charity model per se can you can fall into doing things for people and uh, you can also i think if you're funded uh, you can end up being quite dependent on that funding and that was something i wanted to avoid yeah re- related to this when you are a charity as as a Ruka network is that there's a impetus to demonstrate your impact and the impact of your work and prior to this interview I sent you questions of what I'd like to talk about and one of which was oh tell me some stories of where you think your work's had most impact when you um 
talking about something that's so kind of broad as, as as community what what is impact what does impact mean to you well well first of all i suppose this is this what impact means to the community is is the core substantive question not what it means to the donor mm. and not what it means to a provider that's the critical distinction most of what donors are asking the ones that are not i think fit for purpose are asking is how are you achieving what we want to achieve? Mm, mm. So you are our handmate. We're investing in you, um, and you're helping us get the results that we believe are going to create a better world. And I think that's the wrong way around, uh, frankly. I mean, it's not wrong. It's a bit dramatic. But, you know, it's, 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 it's probably more helpful in the longer term to say, what is it the community wants to achieve? How are you supporting them to achieve it? Mm-hmm. Or another way, you could even say as a donor, I mean, this is quite interesting. As a donor, you may be interested in health or safety or some other such thing. But one of the things that I would say that being serious about uh, community work does is it immediately puts you in a situation where if you say we're going to invest in social capital and if we get impact with regard to anything related to social capital, we will get impact by proxy in relation to our core mission. Can you just define what you mean by social capital? Well, what I'm talking about in practical terms is uh, citizen participation. So more people mm. being involved with their neighbours, doing stuff that make thing, you know, makes things better mm. yep. in, in their place, whether that's their village, town, outer estate, whatever it might be. That we know that when people contribute to the well-being of their community, they get better themselves, they get safer. So, you know, in all kinds of ways, there are better economic opportunities. Um, so you, you just begin to see, like, evidentially, um, all kinds of really, really powerful impacts. So I'm very struck sometimes by that. And I would say to donors, and you can see it in some of our evaluations, when you begin to really think about the evidence frame that you're looking at here, we can draw very clear links between the number of people who are connected and are involved now as against who weren't involved previously and the kinds of impacts that you're after. You know, But I, I suppose one of the things that I'm very keen to do with donors is to train them so that they understand as well how they can show up in a useful way and be really supportive mm. to the community. You know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, it's, it's the evidence going back to the social capital question, the evidence is that if you weren't connected this year to a group, a club, a social network of any kind, actively, in a participative way, not just going and making the tea, but actively connected, and you get connected, you reduce your chance of premature death the following year by up to 50%. Wow. Now that's impact. You know, and now, like if somebody says to me, they have a drug or they have a professional institutional intervention that can compete with that, I'd love to see it. Mm. You know, <laughs> we, like, you know, there's just evidence for him. Um, Brooke K. Labor Market Participation, the influence of social capital is really, so this is the ONS Labor Market Trends Analysis, gives us evidence that says, you're four times more likely to find work through friends than through a job center. Eh? Wow. Um, that's the evidence, right? 
this this is just fascinating. There's a meta-analysis of social capital in health, which is done for the Journal of Health Psychology, I think last year. And it says clearly that living in a supportive community increases our chances of good health by 27%. We have evidence around um, from uh, Robert Sampson's work, uh, a wonderful book called When Disaster Strikes, It's the Survival of the Sociable. Don't you love that? It's the survival of the sociable. Mm. So this was published in 2016 in The New Scientist, which definitively says stronger neighborhoods have significantly less crime. And then in the UK, where you're from, last year, the Guardian piece, uh, um, Manabat's piece around the wonderful um, village of Froome that across the whole of Somerset, right? Emergency hospital admissions rose by 29% during the three years of the Mm. study they did. Mm. And in Froome, the site where they were trying to uh, build community to combat isolation, it fell by 17% Mm. in the same period. So that's impact, I would say. Our, our second ever interviewee on this podcast was a guy from Froome talking about exactly that. It was about a year and a half ago. Who um, was that? Oh, he was... Julian, was it Julian? He, no, he was from um, just one social enterprise called the Li- Library of Things. Um, oh, yes, but he I know gave, it, yeah. yeah, he gave a whole background to Froome and it's it's quite an incredible yeah. story, it's really. Very interesting. Mm. So, and what's interesting is, is these are not unusual places mm-hmm. and the work that has caused that impact and impact's a good question i think you know what would be the impact is not a bad question but i think you know as is with funding i often say that because we started the question of, of impact with funding that funding should be seen as the bait not the fish hmm. and hmm. um so you know you take it how do we use the funding to increase the social capital to get those kinds of impacts so that when the funding isn't there, the social capital remains and the impacts sustain. Mm. And, um, you know, or, or, or if it is there, you know, on an ongoing basis, how can we ensure that that's truly owned by the community and they haven't become dependent? Because that's the other question you see, linking back to what we were saying earlier on. You know, for me it seems that the more people are interdependent at the center of their community with services, obviously, as they need them in reserve, but the more they're interdependent as opposed to being dependent on external funding or external resources, the more powerful they are then when they sit with donors. Because I think what they say then is they say, well, look, we're not passive recipients here Mm. um, and we're not your handmaids. We are citizens, powerful people, who have taken care to bring others with us, including those that have been marginalized. And we have a real sense of what will work around here. And we'd like to invite you in to help us to extend that capacity so we can have more impact. Mm -hmm. That's the conversation, I think, uh, you know, that really makes change happen. And I think the conversations that are driven externally, uh, where, you know, the donor or local governments or whatever it might be is saying, well, we've studied you and here are all the deficiencies. Here are all the things that are wrong with Mm -hmm, you. mm -hmm. And what we'd like to do is we'd like to take the elites among you who are social entrepreneurs, or maybe we'd like to get some elites from outside of you because you're pretty much, you're the sum of your problems Mm -hmm. and you're beyond fixing from inside out. So we're going to get outside in solutions for you. And all you have to do 
is passively receive them. I mean, it, it doesn't take a moment's thought to say that's nonsense. Yeah, yeah. And yet, that's the conversation that prevails. Yeah, yeah. C- can we just move on slightly? Um, you've, you're in quite a, a privileged position in the sense of you've been to communities all over the world and doing this work. I, I wonder what has struck you in terms of just the similarities or the differences between, um, you know, I, I don't know, community in, in East Africa or in, in the West of Ireland or, or in Singapore or wherever. What, what, I, I think what it's, I think it's that done? great anthropological insight that there is only one race, the human mm. race, mm. Um, and that culture is what makes us different, and it's beautiful, you know, and that culture, I mean, we have 6,000 languages living languages in the world today half of them are dying so culture is really um the great undervalued way that human beings figure out how to prevail is the great innovation you know when we're in a place we as a community figure out how we're going to prevail in this place how we're going to survive and that's where language and where faith perspectives and where how we raise our children and our stories and art and dance and so forth come from. And um, for me, that's the thing that is the constant. I suppose the other thing, as well as culture in that sense, that um, our differences are really down to the fact of where we find ourselves, you know, as we kind of emerged out of Africa and um you know, migrated in response to climate change and in response to migration, you know, patterns of our uh, our animals. And then we came in to settle, you know, and uh, move to grain and agriculture and things like that, that you still begin to see if you look at communities through the lens of abundance rather than scarcity, that every community has three things that are universal. And the first, it may not necessarily be visible to everybody in the community, but they're there in every community. And the first is um, that every single person in a community has gifts. They have something to contribute to the well-being of the community. Whether they know that or not is, is kind of, that's the conversation to be had. But every single person, even people who've been unfortunately labeled, has something vital and uh, vitalizing to contribute to their community. Uh, one of the things that makes me very sad sometimes is how many people I meet and how many communities I meet where people haven't discovered that truth and that, that kind of abundant mindset. But the second thing that's abundant in every community, even if it isn't actualized or animated, is hospitality. And uh, over and over and over again, I've never hmm. been in a community where I haven't received hospitality and uh, particularly if i'm not trying to sell them something or sell them out (laughs) it's uh, it i receive hospitality and the third is associations even even in calais you know um over the period of uh the arrival of our brothers and sisters from syria and the, this is a the refugee, great, refugee camp refugee, in France. Yeah. Camp. Remember, they, they, they suffered the most horrible circumstances for people who'd already gone through so much. But literally, I guess people did the best they could do. But it was incredible to see how uh, associational life and enterprises uh, emerged, even in that environment. So I'm really, really struck by 
how people associate. And what I mean by associate, in the same way as you have a flock of birds, you have an association of citizens, groupings of people who come together and figure out how they can do together what they can't do alone. So I often kind of joke as a way of thinking about this, is you could be a beautiful singer, but no matter how good you are and no matter how beautiful a voice you have, you will never be a choir on your own. Mm -hmm. So there's this device that we have in human life called gift exchange, called hospitality, called associational life, which I believe is central to our well-being, to how we raise our children, to how we age, to the safety we have, to our economic prosperity, and to our very democracies, whether we understand democracy in a kind of classic Western uh, sense, or whether we understand it in the sense like in the Indonesian culture, they talk about gotong royong, this principle of contributing to your neighbor without expectation of return, which is predates democracy. And it's about how we're human, how we get better at being human together. I see that in every place that I'm in, every place without oh, exception. Amazing. I, I want to ask just two more quick questions. Um, firstly, what, what is the hardest thing about your work? The hardest thing, the work itself is not hard at all. It's, it's very joyful, really. I love it. The travel <laughs> um, it worries me because I'm away from my family, but also it, uh, it's not good for the environment. So that's hard. Um, and I have to make some really tough ethical choices about that. So I'm aware of that and feel um, somewhat compromised sometimes. Not sure I'm always making the best choice, but that, that's hard. So I, I wrestle mm. with that. Uh, but the other stuff, you know, tends not to worry me so much. I think when I was younger, I spent a lot of time trying to reform institutions. And I've given up on doing that now. I'm much more interested in reseeding associational life and supporting, you know, change outside of institutions, which is ironic because I spend so much time now in institutions, essentially convincing them to seed their innovation as far away from the institution as possible. So I just had a conversation before this one with uh, somebody who's trying to support community building and citizen life. And I was just saying, you know, one thing you want is to make sure that you don't seed that change within your organization because your organization is too big. It will just produce antibodies to kill off the innovation and just helping them to think about how they could resource very, very small, small indigenous local groups to be the hosts of those kinds of changes and uh, they were quite excited about that so <laughs> interestingly i think this idea of being less worried about our institutions and more focused on our communities is changing our institutions as well wow finally for, for people listening to this who've been you know inspired by you and abcd and your work what what kind of one piece of advice or what one question would you ask um, or give to these people? You know, the basic premise here always in life, and it's not peculiar to ABCD, is to um, believe that the people, you know, if you're serving people and you're trying to help change happen, that the people that you're serving have sharper minds and more noble hearts than you do. And um, if you're prepared to work with the audacious assumption that the best solutions happen from inside out, um, and you will reach a point of limit, there will be things that can't happen locally, 
But if you start with that assumption, you'll start with discovery rather than delivery. And I think that's a big, big challenge. So just kind of shift away from the delivery mindset, you know, which the World Bank promote and the Gates Foundation are very, very into delivery and scaling up. I would really commend that people scale down and they shift from delivery to discovery. The second thought would be start with contact rather than selling your content. You know, too many of us go in with agendas, even community leaders. We've got our agendas. We're trying to convert people or we're trying to grow foot soldiers and followers. Much, much better to just listen, give people a good listening to um, and make contact. You know, if we want to be effective, we've got to be affective, build the relationships. That's what community is all about. And the final thought is, what we started with, start with what's strong, not with what's wrong, and then use what's strong to address what's wrong and make what's strong in the community even stronger still. That's how enduring change happens. Most people who are listening to this will have had a mentor who will have said to them, your job is to work yourself out of, out of a job. Well, that's how you do it. That's Cormac Russell there talking about asset-based community development. And you can learn more about his work on the website nurturedevelopment.org. And you can also learn more about our work at Aruka Network on our website, which is arukanetwork.org. And I'll spell it for you again. Aruka is A-R-U-K-A-H. And don't forget, you can catch up with any episode you might have missed from this show on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And you can also email me directly with any feedback or comments or suggestions on this show. Just send your message to jake at arukanetwork.org. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, bye for now.